0: Welcome to Raise the Line with Osmosis.org, seeking solutions with leading experts on how to increase healthcare capacity so people can get the care they need during the COVID-19 crisis and beyond. Hi, I'm Shri Glani, and today on Raise the Line, I'm happy to be joined by Dr. Florian Otto. Florian is the CEO and co-founder of Cedar, which is a healthcare fintech platform that creates customized interactions to facilitate patient-centric financial engagement. As CEO, he drives growth and sets the overall direction across all facets of Cedar's operations. Prior to founding Cedar, Florian was an executive at ZocDoc, where he drove the commercial adoption of the platform, and also founded a daily deal company in Brazil called Clube Urbano that was eventually acquired by Groupon. Florian holds an MD, DDS, and PhD from the University of Freiburg in Germany. So Florian, thanks so much for taking the time to be with us today. Thanks for inviting me. So do you mind just telling us a bit about how you got into the overall healthcare arena? I mean, you have several really impressive degrees here, MD, DDS, and PhD.
1: Happy to talk about that. So um, as you already mentioned, uh, born and raised in Germany, and then went to medical school starting in 2000. And um, after that, I basically did my PhD. I did that in maxillofacial surgery. So it was more of a research and was really excited, got excited about the topic that I decided afterwards to also get my DDS, because in order to become a maxillofacial surgeon, you need to be an MD and a DDS. Afterwards, um, I decided basically that I don't want to do the clinical work, but more rather want to do the business side of healthcare. So I decided then to switch careers and work for McKinsey Company.
0: That's great. Has that been um, kind of the healthcare career, the actual process of becoming a physician and, and a dentist at the same time, or surgeon, maxillofacial surgeon? Has that been useful over your career in healthcare, or was it more just academic in nature?
1: Yeah, I mean, very frankly, when I started uh, studying medicine, the intent was not to become a business consultant. <laughs> and also, when I became a business consultant, the objective was not to become a partner at the firm and do this for the rest of my life. So I think I was always really passionate about healthcare, and I still am passionate about healthcare. And studying medicine, I think, is the most straightforward to really understand what is going on on the ground floor and treating patients. It's an extremely motivating profession just to treat patients and working directly with the patients. What basically brought me more into the business side was the scalability of it. So what I did not like on being a surgeon is you can literally treat one patient at a time. So you can scale that by working a little bit longer, a little bit more precise, and maybe a little bit better than others. But in the end, it's not this thousand x ten thousand x a million x and that really drove me into the business world and working for mckinsey gave me basically like a paid mba where i got a fantastic training but i got paid also on the way which was important after getting two degrees my parents stopped paying me for a reason
0: that's very relatable. So I was, uh, I was in med school at Johns Hopkins. I'm still technically on leave, but verbatim, what you just yeah. said is why I decided to start the company and then take time off med school is the ability to dissociate your time, seeing one patient at a time from your impact, where one of the most enjoyable things I get is when I wake up in the morning and overnight, I've seen like, you know, a couple hundred people from Australia have just created accounts on osmosis. It's uh, pretty inspiring to know that you have an impact even when you're sleeping. So yeah. regarding your scale, I mean, you were an executive at ZocDoc, which is a household name, super impressive company in terms of the scale. Can you talk a bit more about how you went from McKinsey to ZocDoc and what you learned at ZocDoc in terms of scaling healthcare companies?
1: Sure, absolutely. So I had one career step in between. So after McKinsey, I started this company, Club Urbano, which was in the data deal side. The intention was very clearly not that I do this for the rest of my life. I just I'm not passionate enough about daily deals. That's the reason why we basically did this acqui-hire with um, Groupon where they bought us uh, pretty early on, and I stayed for three years there to scale the company. gave me amazing skills to really grow a company from zero to 700 people. And then I joined Zocdoc, and I think Zocdoc was a very good experience for me because it it merged together technology, entrepreneurship, and healthcare. But on the other side, I didn't start ZocDoc. And I think that was actually really good for me because I worked with a very experienced management team and I was able to learn from them. So I think it was fantastic because it was medicine, it was digital, it was entrepreneurship. And I was able to really learn from experienced executives. And that, of course, I think also gave me more the skills and then the passion to start a new business with Cedar.
0: So Cedar is at the intersection of two very hot markets, right? Health tech, digital health, which obviously just in the past few weeks, we've seen several IPOs like Amwell, as well as fintech. And you don't really see a lot of health tech plus fintech, which is where Cedar seems to be playing. Can you tell us a bit more about Cedar, the mission of the company and what inspired you to start it?
1: Sure, absolutely. And I think the reason why basically the market is a bit hot because there's a big problem (laughs) in the healthcare and especially I think on the financial experience. So I started the company together with my co-founder in 2016. And it came more from a personal experience where my wife really had a bad billing experience. So she went to a hospital, swiped the credit card for the co-payment, got a stack of forms to fill out. And then a month later came the first bill. It was a stack of paper, everything in CPT codes. Nobody really understand it. And it was actually tough to pay. So she got the prompt to pay it through a portal, but the portal didn't work through Google Chrome. So it was a bad experience. And then another month later, she got an invoice from the imaging center. And then half a year later, a debt collector called her for a lab bill that she never got. So she changed her address and they mailed her old address. It was a really bad experience. And when you just see where the expectations are of the consumer and what the problem is, it's actually really interesting. So talking to patients and talking to providers, Both of them are really frustrated with the process. Patients say this is absolutely intransparent. This is absolutely inconvenient to do. And this is very unfair. The healthcare providers say the patients, they're not willing to pay. Sometimes they might not be able to pay and they don't want to pay. And what we found out that it's actually neither nor. Patients want to pay like they pay everything else as well. When they go to a restaurant, they love to pay. When they shop on Amazon, they love to pay. And healthcare payments is actually a really difficult and cumbersome communication between the healthcare provider and the patient. So that is also what drove us to it and to this product development of creating transparency and personalization in this interaction.
0: Yeah, that's a really impressive backstory. I didn't know that about your own personal experience dealing with your wife's medical issues in terms of the payments. It's funny, the the whole Google Chrome thing is a running joke we have internally at Osmosis. My co-founder is our CTO, and we, for a long time, put up a screen that if you were trying to log in with Internet Explorer before a certain, like I think before IE10 or something, it would just say, hey, like, you know, there's more advanced Internet Explorers and maybe we'll suggest you use Chrome or Firefox or some better browser And then we started working with a health system where they required us to change that because they were still on pre-IE10. And it's kind of ridiculous to know that, you know, when you experience the fragmentation of these health systems, which are multi-billion dollar organizations and some of the fragmentation of their IT systems. So that's such a big problem to solve. How did you even start it? And can you give us an idea of the scale that you've achieved so far?
1: Sure, absolutely. I'm happy to talk about that, and your experience matches totally with mine. I think health systems are these multi-billion-dollar organizations that still have a fax machine, right? And and all this, uh these non-advanced technologies. But the interesting piece is on the medical side; they're actually pretty advanced. Just go to an operating room, and it's absolutely fascinating what's going on there. But on the administrative side, it's uh, yeah, it's very <laughs> rudimentary. So back to your question. So I think the first was we need to have a very clear hypothesis on how. Should the product look like? And the interesting piece is we didn't take analogies actually from healthcare, but much more from other consumer industries, because there's one clear misconception that we always heard. Everybody told us healthcare is different. Okay, let's start challenging that healthcare on the medical side might be different than online shopping, online entertainment, or travel, right? But the patient is exactly the same patient that also watches Netflix, shops on Amazon, or books the trip on Kayak or Expedia. So on how basically the interaction should be is much more aligned with all these other consumer technologies than with any other experience in healthcare. And we started, what is basically the big difference? The biggest difference was transparency. You don't understand these bills and they are not consumer friendly. So we said, okay, everything that is right now goes over should of course, be digital. It's much easier to get a text message, click on Apple Pay and it's paid in two clicks. You can order your book on Amazon just with two clicks, but can't pay your bill in two clicks. That shouldn't be the case. So transparency is the very first thing. And having an appealing UI and UX for the patients to review their bill, click basically aggregate the bills. Then we have something like FedEx says, track your package. We have track your bill, wherever the bill is in the process. If you have a question right now, the only way to interact with the healthcare system is actually to call them. And if you see the experience at Airbnb or Uber, of course you have a chatbot 24/7 where you just click through a few boxes, and then usually the bot answers your question. Why not in healthcare? Makes no sense not to have it. So we also develop that. So that is the first bucket on the hypothesis, and the second is really the crux of what Cedars is: the personalization of everything. And you, and might remember that from healthcare personalized medicine. Everybody knows that already for the last probably 40 years. Every human being is different and has a different problem. And that's also on the consumer experience. There's no difference. And having a one-size-fits-all administrative experience, sending the same bill to every single patient after 30, 60, 90 days, makes no sense. Some patients react pretty well on a text message at 9 a.m. with clapping hand emojis with a call to action, one click to pay. Somebody else might get an email at 5 p.m. in Spanish with a call to action, pay as little as $50 per month on a payment plan. So we basically personalized all this experience so that every single person gets a different invoice. Similar to your Amazon dashboard looks very different from mine, or the recommendation of your Netflix queue looks different from mine. That makes total sense. So in healthcare, we have this right now as well. Let's see there.
0: That's fantastic. I mean, I was going to ask you about Tools like Affirm, which we know is doing quite well by integrating with companies like everything from Peloton to other companies that want to put people on payment plans, is that what you use, or do you have your own version of payment plans that you just work directly with the health systems?
1: Yeah, it's a great question. So, payment plans are extremely important, um, especially on how to offer these payment plans and need to be very simple for patients to enroll. And we have seen great success on increasing the patient satisfaction with these payment plans and actually also increasing the collection yields. There are two aspects of setting up payment plans. The first is all the communication and setting them up and administering them. And then the second question is who finances them. So CEDAR is not financing the plans. We are just doing the administration and usually the payment plans stay on the balance sheet of the hospital. We are having integrations with two firms that do financing. So that means basically that they can take over the receivables and CEDAR does the administration. We as a startup don't necessarily want to take over the risk for that because our cost of capital is just much higher than that of a not-for-profit hospital. So we strongly believe that the administration and communication is the real complicated and the financing is more the commodity.
0: It makes a lot of sense. And I want to go back to the transparency and navigation experience. You know, I've heard that too. Healthcare is different, right? And and there are things about healthcare that make it different, but ultimately it is the consumer who, while there's some information asymmetry of like, oh, shouldn't x-ray really cost that much? Or what exactly did happen in the ER when I had to check in, when I had palpitations at night? You know, there's a lot of those issues around how much should a bill cost or how do I go about paying the bill, which obviously you guys have solved or are solving. What role does education play in helping a
1: patient understand their bill and and what to expect moving forward? I think there are a lot of touch points that the patient has with a healthcare provider where right now the patient is usually not educated on the financials. And I think the first is, of course, at the check-in. At the check-in, you need to know when you have your healthcare plan right now, what is the copayment? If there is an estimation, there should be, what is the deductible and what is the co-insurance? If it's a planned procedure, we're not talking about the emergency visit, right? Emergency visit is probably not planable, but all the other ones are basically the shoppable experience. Giving the patient also alternatives, that's something CEDAR is not touching, but I strongly believe that the medical team has to do that with the patient. And then after the visit is usually when the biggest pain point right now of the patients are, because they're getting these fields in the strange codes. So what CEDAR is doing is we are translating all the codes into human understandable English. So why should you get right now a CPT code 99213, office visit, for example, visit level three? Why shouldn't we just say this is an office visit medium complexity? Or why do we need to say venipuncture if we can say blood draw? So, we translate all of these codes into the human understandable English. So, that is also, of course, part of the education of the patient. And then it comes when there are questions of the patient that, that they might have. So, the typical thing is you do right now a preventive procedure, like, for example, a colonoscopy. And then during that preventive procedure, there might be, I don't know, removal of a pull up. And in that case, of course, the preventive, which doesn't have any co payment or co insurance or deductible turns actually into a procedure that has a deductible. And answering all of these questions helps a lot. We're having a few tools, how we interact with the patients on resolving the problem besides paying the bill. And that might be denials. So denials is a big problem, and that's going through the roof. More and more claims are getting denied by the insurance companies, and we are helping the patients navigate through this denials process. Or if your insurance expires, and usually then you just get a huge bill. But instead of that, you should get a text message, take a picture of your insurance card and resubmit the claim. And that is where Cedar basically is holding the patient virtually by the hand and navigating through this entire jungle of health cabling.
0: That's fascinating. And so are you doing that mostly through automation or do you also have customer support agents that they can actually speak to?
1: Yeah, so Cedar is more on the technology side. So we employ right now a very limited amount of people. So the automatic chat, we, of course, power that with machine learning and AI in order to always get better. But then if the automatic chat does not get the answer of the patient, it gets routed to the provider and the provider staff is answering that through the chat or through the phone number.
0: Got it. Okay. That makes a lot of sense. So I'm curious, the last few months have obviously rocked the entire healthcare industry as well as the insurance industry, right? So those are the companies like Blue Crosses and United that have had record profits and like Car insurance companies like GEICO are starting to actually have to send refunds because of their medical loss ratios. I'm just curious, what are some of the tailwinds and maybe headwinds you've seen at Cedar as a result of
1: all the COVID craziness that we've seen? Yeah, of course. I mean, COVID was a big change for everyone. We are gladly in an industry in healthcare that is, of course, in the heart of it, right? So that means healthcare is more important than it ever was. And also reinventing and modernizing is actually even more important. Um, there was a lot of change for us, especially in the beginning. So I would say when really this crisis hit, health systems didn't want to talk to us about implementation or about impl- or about buying Cedar. That was the very first thing that happened because they just cared about how to get ICU beds, how to get ventilators, which makes total sense. The second came, there came a lot of requests, which made, of course, our platform really attractive. For example, a separate messaging to patients. So we are in the interaction between the patient and the healthcare system on the communication side. A lot of healthcare systems wanted us to communicate to patients, for example, modified policies to keep the hygiene up, right? Second, for example, was modified just opening hours of healthcare providers was extremely important for them. How to access telemedicine was important to them. Having a more compassionate Dunning cycle in terms of invoicing patients, since we are cloud-based and we ship updates on a daily basis, we were able to adopt that extremely fast, which was of course really good. And an EMR company that does the billing could never ever do because they're on-premise big software companies. After the initial, I would say three to six weeks, everything got back to a more normal. Healthcare providers basically saw, okay, they need to modernize right now. Everybody understands that sending physical invoices does not make sense in the post COVID world there was an increased interest in having a contactless check-in of the patient with the doctor, because right now nobody wants to really touch this check-in pad. Nobody wants to go onto an iPad and put the fingers where the other patients <laughs> might uh, might have it done it before. And of course, CETA solution helps there a lot. We needed to get clients, and that was an interesting piece, comfortable that everything is virtual right now. So the entire sales process with signing them up implementing them, doing all the IT integration is virtually done right now. And clients are totally fine with this. So it's really, I think, amazing on how they adapted quickly to it. And we are very fortunate that we can be a completely remote model and we develop this muscle as well right now as a company.
0: So your company is, the employees are remote. I know you're normally based in New York, but can you give us a sense
1: of your size and scale of the company itself? Absolutely. We are 135 professionals right now. Most of them are based in New York or pre-COVID were based in New York, uh, around 110 and then 25 were already either remote or in a remote office location. Um, And right now, of course, everybody is 100% remote and we also have voluntary working from home until mid next year, so end of June. And then right now, if everything goes well, beginning of July, we would have at least for some people um, a presence in New York again. But some people probably also want to stay in perpetuity remote, which is fine for us if it works with a certain role.
0: Got it. That makes a lot of sense. Now, I just have two more questions because I know we're running out of time. The first is, what do you think some of the lasting changes to the healthcare system will be after, hopefully after we get a COVID vaccine and things get to more regularity?
1: I think it's it's an interesting question. I think a lot of things will will change. I think the first, which is especially on the healthcare provider side, and I might want to focus a bit more there because that's what I, I understand well they are definitely faster in adopting new technologies. And why is that? So in the past, healthcare providers were very slow in adopting anything. So for example, to roll out telemedicine Medicine to get to, I don't know, 10,000 visits a day, that probably was a five-year plan. All of a sudden they had to do something and they rolled this out in three weeks. They absolutely did an amazing job and they developed this muscle and saw, okay, we are able to actually implement very, very fast and quickly something. The second is about risk taking. We all understand, and you're a doctor, I'm a doctor, that risk taking on the medical side is not a good idea. Very often, healthcare systems are run by doctors. So in the DNA is the only thing that really matters is don't take risks. But we also all understand on the business side, if you don't take risks, you don't improve, or it's actually even riskier if you don't take risks. So I strongly believe that this mentality of you need to innovate, you can also do something that is not 120% proven, but maybe 90% proven, you can implement that. If you know the consequences, don't harm any single person. So I think the appetite to innovate will actually increase right now with COVID on the provider side.
0: Got it. Yeah, that's very consistent with things we've heard from other guests as well. I mean, we had uh, Dr. Michael Gustavison, who is a physician who runs UMass Memorial Medical Center. And he was telling us about how some of the things that they had taken a while to even get to getting to a couple thousand virtual care visits. After COVID, you were forced to do it. So they went to 150,000 in like four months. So very consistent. Um, the last question is, since you're a fintech company in healthcare, and you're improving revenue cycle management, I'm, I'm curious, like, you know, politics plays a major role in how demand for everything from copays to you know whether people need to be on payment plans. How does a company like Cedar keep up to date with all the changes that are occurring on a monthly basis? I mean, the CARES Act came out and then telehealth was enabled. Is this something that is a challenge for you all or a competitive advantage? And then what are your thoughts moving forward? Because obviously we have two very different bifurcations, the Republican plan versus the potentially Biden Harris plans on how to provide more access. How do you view the political landscape in terms of how you operate CEDAR?
1: That's a good question. And I think we have kind of a guideline on that. We are really passionate about healthcare. We love healthcare and we read this in our free time. So I know pretty well what are the proposals and what is going on in policy. The interesting piece is, and you you talked about the partisanship. Yes, of course, they're very different proposals. But right now, what is kind of the main factors in healthcare, besides, of course, the ACA repeal or not, is actually on the transparency side, cost transparency side. And that has bipartisan support. We, of course, strongly believe that this needs to happen right? I think it's absolutely crazy that a patient does not know how much something costs before consuming the service. That has bipartisan support. CEDAR is definitely, I think, in a great position to help there. We are working very hard on that to make that digestible, because very often what happens, the idea of the politics is great. The execution is not very well thought through. Because just publishing right now, the wreck rates of the hospital of the charge master doesn't really help you too much, right? It's the same if I just tell you the list price of a car, but I don't tell you which car it is and which model, <laughs> and that you of course can negotiate this down. It doesn't help you too much. I think that is definitely where Cedar is, I think, in the core. And second is the surprise billing. Surprise billing is of course also a problem. Everybody, and that's the interesting piece, agrees that surprise billing is terrible. Providers agree that it's terrible. Um, the payers agree it's terrible. And the patients, they are, of course, always the most suffering from everything. We are also helping with the surprise bidding issue. Everything that happens or uh, kind of ideas that might happen in the future, we are monitoring, but we are not acting on them. Because we strongly believe that if we focus on improving the patient experience, we probably will be fine in any case. We don't believe that healthcare out of pocket will go away. This is not a thing that we really think over the next few years. I think getting it more transparent, it actually even makes sense. What does not make sense in the U.S. is that the poorest people have the highest deductible and the richest have the lowest deductible. That is a thing that, in my opinion, makes zero sense. I would love to see this going away
0: yeah it's like you're you're too poor to be poor basically at that point so florian i'd really like to thank you for taking the time to be with us today as well as for bringing more transparency and ease of use to the medical billing side of things especially with the patient first mentality as you clearly have thank you Seth.
1: really appreciate it
0: thanks for taking the time to be with us today and with that i'm shabu thanks to our audience for checking out today's show and remember to do your part to button the curve and raise the line we're all in this together